0: Aloha. You are listening to a message from Shorebreak Church. If you have been blessed by this week's audio message, please join us in the mission of making disciples by partnering with us in prayer or by giving financially. Partner with us by visiting shorebreakchurch.com. Mahalo. Amen. If you could remain standing uh, for the reading of God's Word, we are in the book of Mark this morning. We are in chapter 12, verse 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing, he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to come to church this morning and worship you, Lord. What an opportunity, Lord, to show our love to you, Lord, and to show love to our neighbors as well. Lord, we come to you and we look to you for guidance to interpret the scriptures, Lord. We ask that you open our hearts and open our minds as we hear the message this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, it was about 12 years ago that my wife and I, Jenny, uh, with our two little chihuahuas, Uh, We moved from San Diego to Oahu, and we were pregnant with our first child, and we were moving to a place where I was to start my internal medicine residency and training. We'd never lived outside of Southern California, and so we were excited about this new stage in our lives, this new adventure of moving to Hawaii, and uh, so we moved into uh, a little one-bedroom condo over in Waipahu on Oahu, and we tried to get as prepared as we could to start our family. We were no longer driving distance from our families, and even though we had families come and visit after we had our our first son, Cody, uh, our experience very quickly became a very trying time for us as a family. The stresses of being first-time parents, the first year of being an intern, the long hours, and the exhaustion that we felt were overwhelming for us. And I remember just crying out to God in prayer was, was this what God wanted for us? Was this what God wanted for our lives? Had I done something to deserve the pain that we were experiencing? Now I thought I had lived a righteous life as a believer and always felt that God was in control of my life. And when I look back, and how God provided for us during that time, I really don't know what we would have done if we hadn't had a relationship with Christ. We got connected with a church, and began going to a small group with other young married couples who became our support system. The Lord provided for us, and even though the ensuing years weren't any easier, we developed a trust and a confidence in leaning on our friends and leaning on God when we were struggling. I tell that story and that illustration for a couple of reasons. The main reason is to encourage all of you to get involved with community groups here. If you're feeling alone, disconnected, isolated, it's not because you're on a big rock in the middle of the Pacific here. It's because you're not in community. You're not in a community of believers who can pray with you, who can love you and support you through difficult times in your lives. And when I look back, I don't recall one sermon at that time that impacted me the way that a loving and caring group of believers did when we were struggling the most. So get involved with the community here at Shorebreak or whatever community you're in. The other reason is that illustration also applies to our passage this morning. My initial expectations of coming to Hawaii were that it would be a challenging time in our lives. But never in my imagination what I've predicted, how challenging it ended up being. We were in survival mode. We were barely keeping our heads above water. And as soon as we thought we had, I was missing in my walk with the Lord, was this just another trial in my life, or was I being punished for something that I had done? Was I being too prideful for the accomplishments that I had made? Or did I have a fear that God would not provide for us and the way that I wanted him to. I can only imagine that this scribe had a similar feeling in regards to the law. The more he read and understood the scriptures, the bigger the burden he felt to have to keep up with everything. He's coming from a point of desperation. He's tried to follow the law and it never seems like it's good enough. Was it that he wasn't doing something right? Why was he feeling so overwhelmed by the law? Was he too prideful in regards to his understanding of the scriptures? Or did he fear that God would not let him into heaven? Could Jesus really put his mind at ease? Well, this morning, we're going to address these issues and more as we continue in our study in the Gospel of Mark. We're at a place where Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he's cleansed the temple. He's proclaimed himself as king, and the religious leaders are not convinced. So they begin to ask him questions about controversial issues. And so our passage this morning is one that was also highly debated at the time. Verse 28 says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? So it's one of the scribes that asked Jesus this question. And it's safe to say that this scribe was a Pharisee. Not all Pharisees were scribes, but if you were a scribe, you were definitely a Pharisee. And the reason that's important is because the scribes were the keepers of the law. They wrote the law, they rewrote the law, they lived and breathed the law and the scriptures. So in all of his knowledge of the law, this scribe ends up posing this question to Jesus. And we know that up until now, the intent of those who were asking the questions of Jesus, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they were more about trying to get Jesus to trip up and answer in a way that would align him with a particular group or put him in a precarious position. Now, the Pharisee is actually addressing Jesus with this question because he's seen how he's answered all the other questions that have been posed to him before this. And knowing that the Pharisee not only had to try to keep up with the law, but also asking conditions that the Pharisees implemented that were not part of the law, he was likely asking with a clear conscience and not so much with a malicious intent. I can only imagine that the scribe thought that he was really living a righteous life, but as the requirements and the expectations continued to mount, he felt like he was drowning. Imagine having over 600 laws in the scriptures hanging over your head and thinking that the only way to get into heaven is to make sure that you've done everything in your power to abide by the rules and the laws. Was he not good enough? Was he doing something wrong that would prevent him from being close to God? And so of course it makes sense that he wants to hear it from the man who claims to be God and find out what he can stop focusing on to be able to get his head above water. If he could just focus his attention on the main commandment that matters, what a freeing feeling that would be. So he's trying to get Jesus to help him out here. And so isn't this the problem that we all have? We want to know the quickest and easiest way to get what we want. We want to put in the least amount of effort and still get the maximum reward. And this is how the religious people saw their faith. You have to earn it. And when you realize that it's impossible to earn, you try to figure out what the minimum requirements are to still get what you want. We all want that Cliff Notes version or Bible for Dummies that can master the essentials, but forget about the minutia, That's not as important. And so I think that's what's going on in the mind of this scribe in this verse. And I think Jesus understands this and his motivation. So he comes out and he answers the question for him. Verse 29 and 30. Jesus answered, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Jesus answers the question. The answer to the question is the answer that we all want to know and the answer that we all need to hear. The way Jesus answers this question isn't anything short of genius. It's brilliant. On the surface, it looks like he's answering the question for the scribe, but Jesus is getting him to think about so much more. The problem is that most of us look at this now and would say, I do know this passage. I do know the answer. We don't realize the depth and meaning behind why Jesus answers the way that he does. But how do I know that the point isn't just to know the answer? How do I know it's not just the answer that matters here? That Jesus wants us to take up to weigh so much more to this question. We'll jump down to verse 34. Notice the verse says that no one dared ask him any more questions. No one dared ask him any more questions. These guys were in absolute shock to this answer. If you are a foodie, I liken this experience to having poke here in Hawaii. Now, I really didn't grow up eating raw fish, or sushi, or any of the local foods here in Hawaii, but when I started to try different fish, I became a fan of poke. All the different seasonings and all the spices that were added. I didn't even realize that I was eating seaweed most of the time, but I thought it was pretty good. But then the day came that I went to Umeke's. They've got a restaurant now, but uh, I'm referring to the -the hole-in-the-wall place across the street. And when I went there, I couldn't believe what I saw. Not only did they have an amazing display of different flavors and types of poke, there it was, the epitome of poke. Someone had taken poke, which was now a favorite of mine, and combined it with avocado. (laughs) They mixed it together. Avocado poke. Can you believe it? Who would have figured to combine avocado with poke and come up with such an amazing taste? I couldn't believe my taste buds. And after having it for the first time, I was shocked and speechless. And so this is the reaction we see from the Pharisees. Jesus' response is so out of the box and so unexpected that they wouldn't even dare to ask anything else of him. Is this the sense you have when you are reminded of this verse? That Jesus' answer shocks you in the same way. Is this an avocado poke experience for you? (laughs) Or is it that we have become deconditioned to the real meaning of this verse? That we no longer have that sense of awe-stricken shock anymore because we know what it means? Or is it that we haven't really looked at the passage in the entirety that we need to to understand the big picture of what Jesus was communicating to them? Going to be one of, I have to admit, in studying for the sermon, I was under the impression that this was going to be one of those straightforward, basic concept sermons that I could breeze through. And not that I didn't think I was going to learn something, but rather to be so shocked that I hadn't picked up on so many important aspects of this passage before. It made me realize that no matter how many times I read a book in the Bible, a passage, a verse from God's Word, It never returns void. Even if we read it a thousand times, he always has something new to show us and to learn from. Because if you're like me, a lot of us might initially think that this verse is just about love. Just love God and love everyone and everything will be all right. Does that seem like a mind-provoking, shocking statement that would keep you from asking any more questions at the end of the day? Of course not. There was something more, so much more, that was not only said, but actually heard by the scribe. Jesus knew who he was talking to, who was listening. He knew that they were religious and their view of morality was skewed. And so, what does he do? Jesus redefines the law. He does this by redefining the content and redefining the motive of the law. In other words, what they should really be doing and the reason why they should be doing it. Let's take a step back for a second. The scribe is coming to Jesus and most likely is thinking that if he answers the question, that he'll pick one of the Ten Commandments. But by picking these two commandments... From Deuteronomy and Leviticus, he is redefining the law completely. Deuteronomy six, four through five says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Leviticus nineteen, eighteen You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as read yourself, I am the Lord. These verses redefine the content of the law by focusing our attention on how love relates to the law. When we look at this account in the book of Matthew, we see that from these two commandments are what hang all the law and the prophets. Envision those over 600 laws in the Bible hanging down from these two verses and what a statement it makes about those laws. Imagine your perspective when you visualize all the laws in the Bible that before you determine what the law is saying you see them hanging down that we cannot even start to think about addressing them without first thinking of these two commandments. We have to put these laws into the right context or we will miss the reason why the laws are there. Until we understand that everything in the law is about love, and that love is only given definition by the law, we can't understand the laws and commandments that are in the Bible. Every single law is about love. Every single law. These two laws are the lens that all other laws are to be filtered through. How about a few examples in the Old Testament to get a better idea of this? How about adultery? How does an understanding about God's love change? How we see this law about maintaining purity in your marriage? Is refraining from extramarital affairs what God really wants us to focus our attention on? Or is the main purpose of addressing adultery that God wants you to love your spouse wholeheartedly and be fully devoted to him or to her? God wants you to have a strong marriage. He wants you to have a strong family. He wants you to be blessed through your marriage. He wants us to be focused on the person that we were meant to be with and meant to be married to. And if our love is directed to that one person and we are wholeheartedly committed to them, then we have the focus of our relationship that God wants us to have. And what about those of you who aren't married? What about the commandment about stealing? How can we see this commandment through the lens of a loving God? Is it really about keeping you from stealing something that you've always wanted to have but couldn't? Or is it, could it possibly be, that he wants to see how abundantly generous you can be to those around you and share your love to them by this generosity? If you're focused on being generous wholeheartedly, does God really need to tell you not to steal from others? What about lying? Doesn't God want us to focus our attention on living self-revealing lives with the people around us and not to focus on manipulating or deceiving others? Even though these laws are stated in the negative form, do we really think that we are fulfilling the law by refraining from these issues in our lives? Does God sit up on his throne and say, wow, good job, you didn't steal anything when you went into that store today. You've really shown me that you love me. And are we supposed to be pleased that we really accomplished something by not stealing something every time we go into a store? or that we didn't lie every time we opened our mouth, or we didn't commit adultery every time we were with someone of the opposite sex. We must realize that God's purpose for every one of his laws is another way or opportunity for showing love. We just have to see it through the right vantage point, the right lens, and with the right heart. Jesus wants us to understand that love is what defines what it means to live lawfully. Love is what defines what it means to live lawfully, and not just abiding by laws. But it's not just that either. It is just as incom- incredible to understand that the law defines what it means to live lovingly as well. And by this, Jesus is not saying to just love, love everyone and love everything. You've got people who take this concept to mean that if you love everything and everyone, how can that be bad? Why can't we just say, don't worry about all the laws. Don't worry about adultery, stealing, lying, all those laws. God knows you love him. And that's what's important. What does it matter? Problem is, by saying that, by saying that we don't obey his laws and making our own rules for our life is to say that you know better, that you are more wise and that you are more loving than God himself. And how can that be loving to God? When Jesus is saying that all laws boil down to loving God and loving others, he is telling us why God wrote the law. God didn't write the law just to give us something to do. He doesn't have a 600-plus list for each one of us that he's keeping track of. He wrote the laws to show us what the loving thing is to do. Not only does love define what it means to act lawfully, but law defines what it means to act lovingly. Only when we begin to understand this will we understand The content of the law. So what do we think of this Pharisee? He's trying to get Jesus to minimize the law. Do we see a problem here? He wants to make it more achievable. He wants to make it less oppressive. He wants to make it more feasible. And what about Jesus? He has just given us the most positive, uplifting, encouraging view of the law that we could ever imagine. And not only that, but in this section of the passage, he also redefines the motive. The motive is buried in these verses as well because it is out of a heart and love for God that we are then able to love our neighbor. Jesus Christ is saying the only way that we can keep the law is to have a deep passion and love for God. The verse in Deuteronomy bleeds passion. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, what else do we have to give? It's an all-out, all-encompassing, all-involving, comprehensive love for God. The law cannot be anything other than oppressive, destructive, restrictive unless the reason you keep it is that you already have this type of passionate and wholehearted relationship with God. Jesus is really saying, by responding this way, that the scribe is asking the wrong question. He's coming from the standpoint that he thinks he needs to keep the law in order to get God's love, and so he completely misunderstands God's view of love. Whenever we think we need to earn someone else's love, earn our own love or self-esteem or God's love, it can only lead to a view of the law that is destructive. It might not even be that obvious that we are doing it. But what you're saying to yourself and to God is that your motivation is so that God will be pleased and that he will love you because of what you have done. We want rules, but we don't want to be ruled by them. We want a God and a master, but we really don't want him to be in control of everything. So here's the point. The only way that the law can be life-giving is not when you obey to get something, but when your ultimate desire is out of a giving heart. It's not about being selfish. It's not all about you and what you think is going to make you happy. You already, you have to already have the self-esteem. You have to already have the love relationship with God and do what the law asks of you for God's sake. It's not to be done out of fear. It's not to be done out of pride. And for religious people, when they operate out of fear, they say they're going to follow the law because if they don't, God won't let them into heaven. This is nothing but a fear-based mentality in our relationship with God. We are afraid that we won't get what we want. The other way is out of pride. You follow his laws to show that you are better than all the other people who don't follow the law. You've proven how great you are. And you should get what you want because you're so awesome. Tim Keller says in reference to this concept that what's going on is that in your religious life, you are nurturing the roots of evil. In the heart of your devotion to God, in the heart of your devoutness, in the heart of your religiosity, in the heart of you coming to church, in the heart of you reading the Bible, in the heart of your obedience, in order to get love from God to get love from others, to get love from yourself. It's our motivation when our hearts are focused on selfish desires, and it is what leads us to oppress other people and to try to manipulate them into doing what we want them to do for us. What the law of God does on its own is hides who you really are from you oppresses you, hurts you, oppresses others, and hurts others if you obey it in order to get love from God, self, or others. This is instead of giving love out of a relationship that you've already got, that's filled with love and acceptance. And that's what Jesus is saying. Do we now understand why there is such a shock in the response to Jesus' answer to the question, Jesus is painting a picture that shows that law and love work in sync. His answer is not a conservative view. It's not a liberal view. It's not a middle-of-the-road view that takes both collectively. It's a view that surpasses their understanding of both law and love. And so where does it start from? It starts from an understanding that you have to already know that God loves you, that he is infatuated with you, that you are his child, and that he couldn't love you any more than he already does. That it's out of this love that we strive to be obedient because even if we do it imperfectly, even if we fail, it will still bring health and healing to your life and the lives around you. Do we now see why this was such a radical concept for the religious to understand at the time? And do we see why it should be so radical for us to understand as well? So how do we get there? Verse 32 through 34. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said he is one. And there is no one other There is no other besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions the Pharisee repeats what Jesus says and then he makes a very interesting comment about offerings and sacrifices. You see, the Pharisees thought they could satisfy God by making up the difference and not fulfilling the law by their offerings and their sacrifices. And that was all they needed to do. Try your best. When you come up short, just make sure you cover yourself with offerings and sacrifices. But the scribe, this Pharisee, he now realizes that in order to abide by the commandments that Jesus is referring to, the requirements have become so much more than he ever imagined. That it is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. There aren't enough offerings or sacrifices to cover the gap because it is so much larger now that he understands Jesus' point he sees that he cannot do it on his own. He is so far from Jesus' redefinition of the law that understanding the content and his motive reveal to him what a selfish person and what an unloving person he truly is. And so Jesus says, Ah, yes, the light bulb is starting to flicker You're starting to get the point. But you're not quite there yet. He understands that the only way to unbelievable self-esteem is for you to lose all self-esteem. That the only way to get a love beyond what you dared believe is to admit that you are a less loving person than you ever dared believe. And that the only way to get this love is through repentance, and that he cannot satisfy the law. He's starting to get convicted. He's on his way, but he's not there yet. So what is it that's missing? Why isn't this scribe there yet? Why is this understanding not enough for Jesus? It's because this scribe still has another very important piece to understand. He still has to understand grace. He still has to understand that Jesus is the one who covers him in all of his inadequacies, and that Jesus is the one who will pay the price for not only him, but for everyone. It's the second step to understanding the gospel. The first step is realizing that I am more wicked than I ever believed. And the second step is that because of Jesus, I am more loved and accepted than ever believed now. The first step destroys pride, and the second step destroys fear. The first step is the humility that destroys the pride, and the second step is the affirmation that destroys the fear. So no longer do you have a heart that is being honest, out of fear and pride, but a changed heart that has been changed by grace. Jonathan Edwards is quoted by saying, the difference between a religious person and a Christian is that a religious person obeys the law out of an empty heart, using God to try to fill it with blessings. And a real Christian, someone who obeys God out of a full heart, just simply trying to delight in God and the people around us in who he is in himself. Even though he doesn't come up to the scribe and tell him directly what to do next, it's indicated by the whole context of this passage. It's indicated by the whole Bible because it's the gospel message. The second step is that you have to see that there was only one who offered the ultimate sacrifice for you. And in that sacrifice, which made all other sacrifices obsolete, was on the cross. And it is where you can actually see this love life completely fulfilled. When Jesus was on the cross, he says in Matthew 27 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was the only one that he said to, If you obey me, I will send you to hell and I will punish you for their sake. He was crying out to God from hell and he had turned his back on him from hell. He was saying, My God, My God and loving him from hell. Not for anything he was getting, but just for who God was. And not for himself either. It's at that moment that we see that the only time in history that someone loved God without any benefit for himself, no profit but just for God's sake and that he was doing it for us. In that very moment, you have the ultimate example of someone who passionately loved God with all his mind, all his heart, all his strength. He loved his neighbor more than himself. And seeing that you now know you have a master that died for you, Finally, we can resolve the issue of having a master and having rules because he is the one master that will accept you for who you are purely by grace. Because he fulfilled the law for you. You can go out and live a life imperfectly, but still live a life wholesomely. Jesus, he lived the perfect life for you and showed us what it meant to have a passionate love for God so much that he went to the cross for us so that we would no longer have to make offerings or sacrifices to cover our sin. Our sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus. And Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus loves you, cares about you, and wants what's best for you. He made it possible so that you could love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And there is no better example than Jesus to understand what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is how Jesus has not only redefined the law, but completely fulfilled the law as well. If you are not a believer this morning, and you are wrestling with some of these issues, realize that you too are not far. We encourage you to talk to the person that you brought you this morning, or come up after this gathering and talk to one of us pastors or leaders. We would love to talk with you and get you connected with a community of believers and answer any questions that you may have. Let's go to the Lord. Father God, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for the commandments. Thank you for the law, Lord. You have given us a book of instructions, Lord, that we do not... Follow just to check marks off of a box on a list, Lord. We want to have a love for you that surpasses all understanding, Lord. We want to love our neighbor more than ourselves, Lord. You have given us so much more by giving us your son, Jesus. You have given us freedom from being bound by the laws that oppressed people. You have made that ultimate sacrifice so that we no longer have to worry about bridging a gap and covering what we're not doing right, Lord. You see us as clean, as perfect, as wholesome. You have given us the grace. Lord, we thank you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please visit shorebreakchurch.com to stay connected or to share your story.